Welcome to Tax Break, a podcast on the tax law brought to you by the lawyers at Miller & Chevalier. I'm Steve Dixon, a tax litigator with Miller & Chevalier. As usual, I'm joined by my colleague, international tax and tax policy expert, Lauren Pons. And we have our first repeat guest, our, our colleague and tax legislation and policy expert, Jorge Castro. Today, we're going to discuss some of the business-specific tax proposals that have come from President-elect Joe Biden. Uh, and so we had to bring on Jorge because he served <laughs> on the Obama-Biden uh, transition team in 2008, and he can provide us with some perspective about how the incoming Biden administration is currently assessing these issues. Um, and I should note, before the election, Jorge and Lauren had a, a more extensive and policy-oriented discussion with Doc, Dr. Jared Bernstein on a webinar with the firm, uh, who uh, Dr. Bernstein was the chief economist and economic advisor to, to then-Vice President Biden, and he, he advised President now President-elect Biden during his campaign on economic and policy issues. Uh, so today, what we want to do is touch on some of the elements of what have come out of the Biden campaign um, and in terms of their priorities for, for tax legislation in, in the coming administration. As always, the idea behind Tax Break is to provide listeners with some perspective on select tax issues that we think are interesting. We want to go deeper than what's in the tax press, but stay sufficiently high level so you can follow along without a copy of the regs. Today, I think we'll actually be putting a little more flesh on the bones, <laughs> the, the proposals so far, uh, while they are sort of sufficiently substantive to discuss uh, their actual sort of execution is, is largely up in the air. So I think we'll be doing some speculating. As always, first, a disclaimer, tax break is not intended to be legal advice and you cannot rely on it as legal advice. Its content reflects only the thoughts and opinions of its hosts or guests. So Jorge, Lauren, I wanna kick off with the, uh, the sort of big issue that we expect and the issue that I think a lot of uh, tech, corporate taxpayers have expected um, from any incoming Democratic administration, which is some upward movement on the what is the now 21% corporate income tax rate. Uh, President Vice or President-elect Biden has put uh, put out a proposal for 28%, and obviously with the, the Senate's still up in the air. It's difficult to handicap, but I want both of your th thoughts on sort of what's the ceiling and, and what's practical and, and what should a taxpayer, a corporate taxpayer sitting here today expect um, in terms of the rate next year? Jorge, you want to kick it off? Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm honored to be the first repeat guest and uh, hopefully this will not be my last, but after, after this discussion, this may be my last, we'll see. <laughs> um, but yeah, to answer your question, um, obviously, um, Vice President Biden, um, I'm sorry, President-elect Biden, not to get used to that, is now proposing a 28% um, corporate tax rate. Um, I think a lot of you know, what's, what's upping there, obviously, as you hinted, Steve, is what's going to happen uh, in in the Senate, right? Um, the 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 conventional wisdom before Tuesday's election was that Democrats were, were going to regain the majority in, in the Senate, uh, perhaps um, uh, do away with, with with the filibuster, which would make it more likely for for a corporate increase to to occur. 
um, that uh, that dynamic is obviously not taking place. Um, and I think you know, every all eyes right now are are on the two Georgia Senate runoff races. Um, so, but but I, I do think that you know, there's as as we've talked about earlier, there is history to that rate, right? It's 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 a rate that's proposed in past Obama administration budget proposals. Um, I think Democrats have gotten comfortable proposing the twenty percent rate. Um, so I think from from their end, I think it's an easier is an easy lift. Obviously, the the harder um, the the harder task would be is you know can they get any Republican support, particularly in the Senate, which I suspect is going to be a significant challenge. What and so what is I mean, do you see there being any path forward for any increase to the corporate rate if there isn't Democratic control in the Senate? I think there there could be even I think if there is or if there isn't democratic control in the Senate, there is some room perhaps to move off of the 21 percent rate. Um, you know, Jorge raised the important all important runoff races in in um, Georgia that are going to take place in January. And, and let's say that the Democrats do take control of the Senate. I, by, President-elect Biden has to kind of manage the progressive and the moderate wings within the Democratic Party. And there are people within the party who are pushing for um, more of a, of a tax to be levied against corporations, plain and simple. And so there is some, I think there's some momentum within the party to, to move away from the 21% rate, which is seen as um, just too generous. To corporate taxpayers, twenty-eight percent, I think, is uh, almost impossible. <laughs> um, it's very difficult to move the rates up even one percentage point at a time. Um, there, there are groups, trade groups, lobbying groups, who who spend a lot of time and energy um, trying to make sure that a rate increase does not come into come into play. But that being said, you know, the idea of twenty-five percent has been floated regularly as kind of a, a nice um, compromise, uh, so to speak. And maybe we'll see something along those lines as, as something that comes out. But um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear Jorge's thoughts. They also have to weigh this against any other priorities that they have that are that may be deemed more important than the corporate rate. And so do you really want to have a fight over corporate tax rate when there are other other uh, proposals and provisions that the the party deems more important. Yeah, I think you know um, on that point, Lauren. That's that's an excellent point that you raised, right? I think it's 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 um it's a more interesting calculation when you pair the corporate tax rate increase prospects with with another larger policy proposal, right? That perhaps could gain bipartisan bipartisan support, right? Um, so I think. The, the likelihood of there being a standalone corporate tax rate bill or a corporate tax reform bill, um, corporate tax reform bill by itself is very, very unlikely. But however, this could, this could show up as a revenue raiser, right? Uh, right. Because right. this certainly, you know, by increasing one, two, three, four percentage points, that could cer certainly raise revenue to fund other larger policy proposals. Um, you know, the one area that I think there's been bipartisan support in the past, which I think Vice President President-elect Biden. I think he's saying that he used to saying that <laughs> President-elect Biden um, 
is is has touted in the recent past has been infrastructure, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, infrastructure investment, which has received bipartisan support in the past. So perhaps there's a large, grandiose, you know, infrastructure investment package that both parties can, can agree to, and they want to pay for it. This could show up, and then perhaps, you know, a modest increase could be palatable to both sides. So that's mm-hmm. one area. Um, there, you know, I suspect, and I think we talked about this a little later. A a a COVID relief package will be kind of top of the list, you know, next year. But there could be room for also a broader economic recovery package down the road as well, right? So could that also include, as a revenue raiser, a corporate tax rate increase, right? So those are the type of calculations that I think that um, that that could occur. Yeah, and we should point out, you know, it's a four-year administration. I think people are worried, like, what's going to happen immediately? But this is this is a longer runway kind of conversation. So think about this, maybe not just for twenty twenty-one purposes, but what what could possibly happen between now and, and the end of twenty twenty-four. One of the other big uh, sort of broad scope changes that have been floated by the the Biden tax camp or by by the Biden campaign was a, a, a min tax, uh, so a minimum tax of 15% on book income. And, and Lauren, this is uh, sort of not entirely divorced from a, a larger conversation that's happening in the context of the OECD and, and its Pillar 2 proposals. So, and, and I, as I understand it, what's been floated is a min tax on, on book income. So, what would that look like, and and what would what would what kind of traction might something like that actually get? You know, I think this is something that sounds good on on the campaign trail, and it it really it's easy to explain. You know, fifteen percent minimum tax rate modeled after the AMT. Um, I, I I don't see it really going anywhere. Um, you know. On one hand, the campaign kind of assailed the income tax as as distortive and a poor measure of profitability and and the ability of the government to actually capture what a company was doing in terms of the taxes that are that are um, actually collected because of deductions and credits and other other things that are built into the code features of the code that might reduce one's um, taxable income and therefore tax. And so the alternative was to look at book income, not tax, and, and that's a more um, pure measure of, of a company's actual profitability. Okay, that's fine. But at the same time, we just got finished talking about raising the corporate rate. So either the income tax is efficient or it's not. Right. Um, and if it's not, leave the rate alone and focus on the min tax. If you're going to focus on the income tax rate, I, I think that the minimum tax is is really, you know, it's it's uh, superfluous. Yeah, you have to decide which one of these you want to pursue. Yeah, and and Jorge, I mean, maybe you can weigh weigh in on whether you think. I mean, that's obviously a a politically easy message to deliver that we should not have large profitable companies paying zero dollars of of income tax. But do you think there's any purchase for for something like? like a min tax, especially now that the AMT is gone. Yeah, I think that you'll you'll definitely have progressive wings of the Democratic Party who are going to be pushing for that. And I suspect there'll be 
you know, factions within the Biden administration who are going to be advocating for this, right? Um, but I think as long as the Senate remains, um, you know, has a Republican majority, I think it's going to be a, um, a tall order. I think it's going to be a significant challenge. Um, so, you know, so we'll see. I mean, it'll be interesting to me whether or not that, that proposal gets translated into the first, you know, hopefully, you know, the, we're, the, the indication that we're getting is that the Biden administration will resume kind of a treasury green book, right? To really outline their, their priorities with, with, with specifics. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether it makes the cut there, right? Uh, I think that's the first thing to, to look for. But I think I suspect that there are going to be significant roadblocks um, for this movie. Now, I mean, these types of book tax difference, you know, have circulated for a long time. There's not a new debate. You know, when I was in the Senate, it was long, long debated. Um, but um, I suspect that political headwinds are not going to favor it. No. Although we should point out, you know, Steve, you mentioned Pillar 2. And the yeah. book book income is the standard for, for this, this BEPS 2.0 initiative. So um, it may be that the world, I'll, I'll argue against myself, maybe maybe the world is moving. <laughs> oh, into... You're stealing my shtick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? I'm going to be a litigator before we know it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, you know, it could be that this is just the way the world is moving, and and book is the is the the measure of of income. Yeah, and okay. that I mean, that's what I wanted to ask. You know, if if we see pillar two sort of get traction, get broader traction, does that pave the way for something like this? If not in the immediate future, down the line, and and that that seems possible. Yeah. Um. Okay, well let's let's run through some of the the international the, the the changes that I think are near and dear to Lauren's heart the international changes that have been been floated, um, and the first one I think the big one is the is this doubling the the guilty rate from ten and a half percent up to twenty one percent, and and what's the I mean uh, maybe Jorge you could talk about sort of what's the animating sort of policy rationale here is this just a is this just a rate increase or is this are there other sort of principles that are at work here yeah i think you know i suspect that the biden administration um the biden campaign more specifically proposed this as a way to try to to discourage right the shifting of of income and um and operations abroad right so i think that from from was probably their significant policy rationale, right? Um, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to get—I mean, Lauren's thoughts on that. But I think I suspect that's kind of the the uh, the the big impetus, right? I think what's missing from that line of thinking is that obviously, how does that going to how does that blend with the other key international tax measures that TCJ reformed, right? Um, and which which is important, right? Um, but you know, I suspect that's kind of that, that was the Biden campaign's attempt to try to, to 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 tout and campaign on the trail that you know that we want to disincentivize the offshoring of jobs that we want to keep them here in the U.S. Yeah, I think you know this is we have to be be very diligent with our separation of the political versus the policy. Um, and this does. This is. This also sounds very good on the campaign trail. You know, these companies that are operating abroad, we're going to double the tax rate on them and stick it to them. Uh, but you know, I 
we have gone from a worldwide system of taxation to some would say quasi-territorial, partial territoriality, however you want to frame it. Um, and so guilty is meant to capture um, active business earnings from operations abroad of U.S. Um, multinationals. And so the half rate is kind of a nod to the fact that we're a territorial system, you know, and right. a corollary to this is is the, the campaign's assertion that they were going to eliminate the QBI allowance, which they mischaracterized as 10% of foreign profits. Um, that is not what QBI is, does capture. It captures 10% of your tangible depreciable asset base. And that's meant to mimic a root return that one would earn from operations abroad, manufacturing, um, distribution, and so on and so forth. Thus, thus discouraging offshoring intangible assets that are exactly. high, high return. Yeah. Exactly. That whatever is over and above that 10% is deemed to be attributable to intangible property. Whether or not you actually have intangibles, it's it's almost it's a, it's a presumption that because you're generating this level of profit, there must be some intangibles. And, and instead of auditing every single company that's over there and looking at what what their uh, property portfolio looks like, this is the um, the replacement for for that that kind of facts and circumstances inquiry. But you know, I <laughs> well, in your view, so from sort of the fifty thousand foot view, mm -hmm. you know, we went from Subpart F and lots of what was what was thought to be from a policy standpoint, lots of deferral to something that is an attempt to more currently tax offshore operations of U.S. companies. Right. Is is this a are we are we doubling up here? If if we double the the guilty rate, is this sort of um, an extreme measure or? Or is this just a sort of an add-on to sort of, you know, guilty replace subpart F and in large part sort of made up for the revenue, you know? Yeah, <laughs> but it, it didn't though. So we still That's have right. subpart F, right? Sub so, <laughs> subpart right. F is passive earnings. Guilty is active earnings. I think folks in, in um, from Biden's campaign would say that we're going to double the guilty rate because it shouldn't matter whether you are abroad or at home, if you're you're generating profit, you should be taxed at the 21% rate. Um, you know that's that is a a point to make in this argument. Right. I do think that you know if we look at kind of what we're doing in the context of pillar one and pillar two and a min tax, and look, there is no reason to raise <laughs> the rate of guilty. You know that's just right. extra extra burden on, on U.S. taxpayers. These are still U.S. companies. Um, and I think that it's a little bit myopic to pretend that U.S. companies are only going to be doing business in the U.S. in 2020. Jorge, any reason to think that this, that the sort of political viability of, of a change to the guilty rate is different from the political viability of just, you know, the overall corporate rate change that, that, the administration is, is looking at? I mean, if you were handicapping them, does a, do, does doubling the guilty have a, have a better chance than, than raising the corporate rate? Because not everyone has guilty, right? I mean. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Not everyone has guilty, right? So obviously from a, from a pure 
who's going to be campaigning against you, right? That you know that becomes an easier path for the Biden administration. Um, but I think if you know, I, this is probably policy malpractice here. But but I think I, I would say just to answer your question, I would say that 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 the, that there's probably a higher likelihood of passage of of increasing the guilty rate versus increasing the corporate tax rate. Yeah. But then you go back to your original arguments about why we needed to lower the corporate tax rate and go to a territorial system, which was U.S. multinationals are burdened more than their foreign parented counterparts. So if you double the guilty rate, what are you doing to foreign um, foreign parented multinationals who are operating in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that can't possibly be good for the for the domestic domestic taxpayer, the U.S. manufacturer, the U.S. company that's still employing Americans. Yeah, so it only hits domestic corporations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Lauren, would there be, if if there were a change to the guilty rate, would there, would, would you need, there have been some arguments out there that you, that there is necessarily, if, if you're going to maintain some kind of in- intellectual symmetry between guilty and fitty that you need to make changes on the fitty side too. What's your, what's your read on that? I mean, that is, that is the, um, the argument that, that was made, you know, when, when both were enacted, it was to equate the rates between domestic and foreign operations. So whether you're serving the market from the U.S., ser- serving the foreign market from the U.S., or you're serving a foreign market from abroad, we're going to equate the rates. So that translated into a deduction um, on the U.S. side. So if you double the guilty rate, that means FIDI is going away <laughs> because you're equating that rate. It's already a 21% corporate rate in the U.S., so goodbye right. deduction. Um, and that argument is, is crucial, uh, critical to our defense in the in the WTO space um, and, and making sure that FIDI is not improperly characterized as an export subsidy because it is a, a rate equating activity or uh, measure. So doubling the guilty rate would ostensibly make FIDI go away as we know it um, from the perspective of the equating the rate argument. That's not to say that there cannot be some other um, kind of deductions or incentives in the R&D space or boosting of those incentives that we already have in place. For... So, oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't no, go ahead. There, go. Lauren. Um, go. I had a pause there. I just wanted to just ask you, so that's a good point, obviously, about the about the relationship between the two, fitty and guilty, but is, is a possible path for the Biden administration if they wanted to kind of stay within that construct to just Expand FIDI then, right? The 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 FIDI, the FIDI um, incentive, right? Could, could that be a path forward for them? Uh, well, then you might venture into export subsidy territory. <laughs> so making once the rates are decoupled, so you've got a twenty one percent rate for guilty and a you know a ten and a half or anything less for FIDI, then what you're really saying is we're going to give you a benefit in the form of a tax uh, break for exports, exports. <laughs> serving yeah. the foreign market from the US. So that would be tough. Um, but that's not to say that there are not other ways that are already either already in the code or could be baked into the code that might incentivize behavior such as you know increased R&D benefits or 
domestic production, domestic manufacturing, something like that. And let's 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 that's a good segue into some of the other things that have been floated, and we'll we'll, we'll run through these a, a little bit quickly. But um, one of the things oh, I wait, think we have to do a lightning round, like our, yeah, that's like a our, it's a lightning round, like our embargoed colleagues. Thumbs up, thumbs round. down. We should just do this <laughs> real quick. Right. That's it. <laughs> No, Jorge, you just need to explain. I'll I'll introduce it and then just give a quick 15-second explanation of everything that our listeners need to know. Wait, I have about. something better for here we go. I have this. <laughs> I'll just do that. Um, right, so uh, so there is a made Amer- made in America tax credit that's been uh, something that that the uh, that the campaign has put out there. Um, uh, and it, I guess 10% is the, is sort of the number that's out there. What is that? 10% of what? And, and how would that work? Yeah. So that's, that's a good question. I think that that's something they haven't really explained in, in, in too much detail, but I think the, the, the policy rationale is to kind of obviously have a tax incentive to revitalize plants, you know, here in the U S um, I think also in the list is like if 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 uh, multinational brings jobs back to the U.S., um, I think one of the punchlines for the for the campaign is to make this refundable, right? Um, I think that they see that as a as a potential hook, right? Um, so you know, obviously that probably means it'll be significantly expensive provision, right? Uh, which is uh, a related issue, but. Um, but no, I think that's kind of to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, Lauren, but I think to me that's kind of their their main provision to encourage jobs in the US, you know, from a, from an incentive carrot perspective. Right. So that's the carrot, the stick being that 10% offshoring penalty, yep. um, which Dr. Bernstein clarified was meant to be prospective. So if you're already operating abroad, you're potentially subject to a higher guilty rate. If you decamp for abroad, you have not only the higher guilty rate to look forward to, but a 10% surcharge. So, um, right. you know, um, that would be, that would be, um, and I'm just noticing, so they, they say a 10% surcharge on a 28% rate, which assumes that they would still be taxing some domestic entity at the at higher the corporate higher rate. tax rate. Right. And then a ten a two point eight percent surcharge bringing you up to almost thirty one percent, which is almost back to where we were in twenty seventeen. <laughs> right. And and would this? I mean, is this effectively like a replacement for old Section one ninety nine A? I mean, it, you know, without that, wouldn't this sort of fill the fill the policy role that 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 section once played? It fills that void, yeah, but um. Especially if you know, a hundred percent bonus goes away. Right. Um, a couple other sort of things that have been floated out there uh, by the by the campaign. One was a a, a remark, as we know, like kind exchange treatment under ten thirty one got repealed for everything except for real estate transactions. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a there's a suggestion that that. It would be repealed for that, um, and then there's also some. I think there's also been some discussion of a, like a financial t- transactions tax. This is a policy I think that has, or a, 
an idea that's come up before, sort of uh, a, a very small sort of half a cent, a tenth of a cent on every financial transaction. What what are these kinds of uh, sort of more uh, targeted financial uh, proposals? What what are the, what are the likelihood that any of these could survive uh, uh, and and make it through a, a, a Republican controlled Senate? I'm going to go out on a limb and say unlikely. Um, I don't, you know, I think that these are, these are really messaging provisions and it, it's, yeah. it's meant to signal, you know, and I think, I think of them as kind of going hand in hand with some of the individual changes, higher capital gains rates, the um, net investment income tax um, idea. These are all kind of say, ways of saying, you know, maybe a tacit acknowledgement that, um, some of the the wealthiest individuals are not taxed on wage income, you know, yeah. and so or how fit, can, like the also the phase out of 199A for right, earners right. above a certain level. Um, yeah, 400,000 is the the cutoff between middle class and and wealthy. Um, but the idea that we're going to look at some of these other uh, ways that people are earning their money. Money and and how can we get at that? And so you know, even though the financial transactions tax would be levied against the financial entities themselves that are processing these transactions, I would imagine you can't think that this the cost won't get passed on in some way, right? Yeah. The question is, does the cost get passed on to the average bank uh, account holder, <laughs> or, or, does it get, or do the know. banks actually bear the cost? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I want to close out, and I want Jorge to give us a couple of um, horses to choose here. Um, <laughs> if 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 you were to guess, Jorge, as to a couple of uh, policies that you think have a chance to to get enacted in the first first year or first eighteen months of the the Biden administration. Um, uh, on the tax side, what 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 would you what would you pick? Like, what do you think has a has a chance? Wow, all right. I, I feel like I should be, be wearing those like special uh, like a hat to like tell me. Uh, <laughs> That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To uh, predict the future. Yeah, like I, I don't the, have like Karnak or something. <laughs> exactly. I don't have it handy here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I think you know uh, I do think there's even though we may have a divided government, Senate, Republican majority, I do think there's a likelihood of significant tax legislation moving forward next year. Um, I, I think, you know, we'll have a significant COVID relief package, which will have, which will bring tax incentives. I think we'll have a economic recovery package as well. And then there's kind of like the wild cards, maybe what's after that, right? It's, I do think in infrastructure, uh, investment, I think, is something that's near and dear Vice Pres President-elect Biden's heart. Um, and I think there's bipartisan interest as well. Um, you know, we talked about um, in, our, in our prep earlier about, you know, what incentives such as R&D, right? I do think R&D, right? So there, there are a couple issues around the R&D credit, and Lauren and Steve, you know this well, about um, from TCJA, you know, um, uh, um, that, that are coming in. 2022, so Congress is going to have to address. Um, so, could there be changes around the R&D credit, right? And I think R&D credit fits a message around economic recovery quite nicely, right? So, so there, there is clearly, I think there could be incentives around there. 
Um, I think incentives around domestic manufacturing and production, right, in addition to R&D, um, such as the manufacturing tax credit that, that President-elect Biden has proposed, I think is going to be on the table. And I, and I think that's going to be um, uh, something to, 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 uh, to uh, watch out for as well. Um, but, you know, and, and, and then I think there's also a question of, you know, what's going to be paid for, right? I think it's, um, I, I do think at the outset anyway, I think there's a recognition that Congress has to act and Congress has to go big like they did back in 09, right? When Congress came in after the financial crisis in 08, they came in in 09, passed a significant recovery package, um, not fully paid for. So I think there's a recognition that, it, that, that perhaps you don't have to have paid for it at the outset. Um, which I think gives you a little more leeway in terms of the tax incentives that are proposed. Great. Well, this has been super interesting, Jorge and and Lauren. So, um, and once once we sort of get concrete proposals uh, from the administration, we'll have you back on to to handicap those. Oh yeah. All <laughs> right. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, as always, uh, if you have any questions or comments or want to suggest topics, please email us at podcasts at milchev.com. That's podcasts, plural, at M-I-L-C-H-E-V.com. Thanks, Jorge. Thanks, Lauren. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.